Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Today is Wednesday, November 16th, 2011, and this is episode 786 of the Survival Podcast. And I'm following up yesterday's show where I talked about You know, my uh, my low-carb lifestyle, my paleo lifestyle, where I have changed what I eat. I've shed almost, uh, it's 75 to 80 pounds now in total. I haven't weighed myself for a while, but I know I'm continuing to shed weight. I can tell just by the way I feel, the way my clothes fit, etc. I feel better than I have, well, I would say going all the way back to being in the military. is the last time I actually felt this good physically. Uh, and maybe maybe the first year after I got out of the military where I was uh, still hiking on Uh, a lot and traveling around and uh, spent three months on the Appalachian Trail. Uh, I, I've never felt this good. And it's made me very much a fan of this, and I believe that survival includes our health. And especially if we get into really bad situations, the healthier we can be, the more we can get through. Uh, whether we're stuck alone or we're stuck together, the, the more health we have, the better off we are. And that's why I've made a big deal about this. And I also believe I've discovered some things. And I've discovered some things that we've been lied to about. And I tell you about stuff we've been lied to about all the time. So if it comes up in nutrition, I'm going to tell you about it too. So I've made several attempts to uh, to give the science behind. But I'm not a science guy. I'm a results guy. I mean, that's what it really comes down to. I know what works. And I know what's worked for me. And I know how I feel now. So I brought somebody on to give you the science today. His name is Dr. Gregory Ellis. PhD. He's been doing this stuff for over 40 years, and I will have him on in just a moment. And be prepared for many of your sacred cows of nutrition today, not just to be killed, but to be absolutely slaughtered. And it may be hard for you to believe some of the things you're going to hear from Greg today. I'm not going to tell you to just believe them. I'm going to tell you to go into the actual research and see for yourself whether he's telling you the truth or not. I think in the majority of cases, if you give it an objective uh, uh, investigation, you'll find out that there's a ton of truth there. And um, he's not the source of the uh, of the stuff that maybe you shouldn't believe. I mean, we got it backwards. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, BackyardFoodProduction.com. It's Marjorie Wildcraft's site, and Backyard Food Production is exactly what it sounds like. It tells you how to turn your backyard into a food production machine. The DVD is actually called... Food production systems for a backyard or small farm, and it can be adapted on anything from a tenth of an acre in the suburbs to 10,000 acres in the country and anything in between. It's up to you. But if you want to know how to really become self-sufficient to a large degree with your food and grow the best and most healthy food you can grow, get check out Backyard Food Productions DVD today. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. You know, yesterday our sponsor of the day was BulkAmmo.com, and I said how important it is to have ammo for your weapons. And without ammo, your weapon is nothing but an overpriced club. I'll tell you what else makes your weapon an overpriced club, or more dangerous uh, than, than an overpriced club to, to yourself or others, is an inadequate amount of training and dealing with a conflict situation and then having to actually do that. We all would like to believe that life is like the movies, and if something goes goes down, we'll be able to handle it. You don't know that you're going to be able to handle it until you put yourself through training and you put yourself through some testing with training. 
And the best thing that you can do, if you really want to be uh, a conscientious uh, supporter of the Second Amendment and carry, especially if you're carrying a handgun, is go take a good, solid handgun uh, self-defense course. And I can't think of a better place to do that than Fortress Defense Consultants. And if, hey, you want to take a course on rifles and carbines or shotguns or medical treatment or anything else that has to do with tactical self-defense, check out Fortress Defense Consultants. And remember, if you can't get up to Illinois where they're at, they will set up on a range near you and come to you if you put together a small group, please get in touch with Frank Sharp at FortressDefenseConsultants.com and make sure that you have the training to match the armament. One is useless without the other. Uh, next up today, remember you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And you can also listen to the uh, Survival Podcast streaming on the Prepper Podcast net radio network. It's at PrepperPodcast.com. There's some other cool podcasters over there you might want to check out. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And uh, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, hey, get in touch with me before you join. Shoot me an email, jack at the com, and I will send you a special discount code in recognition for your service to our nation. Uh, one more thing before I go on. I want to remind you guys that that email address that I gave out, jack at the com, is my email address. It's my only email address. It's the one I check several times a day. If you want to get in touch with me, it is better for you to use that than to use Facebook or a private message on the forum or Twitter or anything like that. That's the best way to get it. That's better than my cell phone number. I tell that even to my friends. Email is the best way to make sure I know you want to get a hold of me. I can't answer all my emails. I have too much email volume. It is absolutely impossible, but I do read them all. I guess something occasionally ends up in the spam folder and I miss it, but in general, I read every email and I appreciate your thoughts. Uh, and even when we disagree, I appreciate you taking the time to email me. All right, folks, and with that, we've got the housekeeping segment of the show wrapped up, and it is my great pleasure to bring on at long last, I promised him to you over a month ago, uh, Dr. Greg Ellis, Ph.D. Uh, Greg is one of the world's foremost experts on nutrition, health, and well-being. He's dedicated over 40 years of his life to both scientific and practical research, and he's worked with over 10,000 uh, clients, including many champion and amateur professional athletes, as well as the general public. Over the last 15 years, Greg has also worked with over a 1,000 autistic children, helping them with cutting-edge energy medicine. Some of them are no longer artistic, and many others are considerably improved. In 2011, Greg wrote the groundbreaking, breaking, groundbreaking book, The Glycation Factor, exposing the real dangers of consuming carbohydrates. Today, Greg maintains a large consulting practice in Pennsylvania, in addition to writing and lecturing. He's here with us today to talk primarily about low-carb lifestyle and low-carb diets and uh, give me some thoughts on my views of things as, as I've kind of been through this over the last year and, and the results that I've had, and answer a lot of the questions you guys have had for me that I just can't answer at that scientific level. Hey, Greg, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks very much. Good to be here. Hey, I kind of wanted to start out. Could you just give people maybe your basic story on your walk with this? Because I know you've been through, like, you were tempted into the world of veganism at one time, and that didn't work out so well, and you've experienced fastings, and kind of just, like, who you are, where you come from, and, and not so much the credential side of things, but, like, the practical application uh, from competing in, in, in football and all these other things, and how you kind of found this. Okay, no problem. The uh, My father was an athlete, and as such, he inspired me to get into sports, and as a youngster, I was very interested in muscles. So I bought my first set of 
pulley springs when I was about eight and my first barbell when I was about 12. And then my father split and left, and I ate everything in sight and gained 60 pounds with no increases in height. And so there I was at 13 years of age, obese, terribly obese. And I needed to solve that problem. And I had been living in this, this physical culture world for four or five years. So I turned to that direction to see what I could figure out and just began to experiment with loads of different diets, loads of different training programs to see if I could solve this obesity problem. And as a result, I learned a lot. And I began to experiment with more more types of diets and read everything that was out there. And even as a teenager, without even knowing that I was doing it, I was living on a low-carb diet because I was eating a lot of meat because I wanted to have the protein to build the muscles. So Atkins published his first book in 1972, and I really didn't do anything with that. I didn't pay much attention to, to Atkins until the late 1980s. I became a vegetarian in 1973 for about three years, and that was the worst thing I ever did. That almost killed me. And I lost all the muscles I'd built up over the years, so I got out of that and started eating, eating more protein and meat. And I was convinced that that was going to be a problem, too, because of the national mania over and fear over cholesterol. So by this time, I'd been fairly well-trained in graduate school, and I began to do a research project on it because that's what they trained me to do. And it took me about three days in the medical library to find out there was a massive argument going on as to whether cholesterol was a problem and fat as well, a problem in the heart disease thing. And there were two, two primarily two camps. And I was trained to do pro-con, and I did it. And Within three days, I found out that the whole idea that cholesterol and fat were the cause of heart disease was all nonsense. So that gave me the freedom to go ahead and begin to consume more animal products, more meat, so I could build my muscles back up, which I did. And then I kept experimenting with different diets. And by this time, I didn't get my PhD until later on yet. And I had actually gone back to graduate school because I discovered that all the stuff I was reading in the lay public all the different articles in some of the muscle magazines, that I wasn't getting anything. I wasn't learning anything. So I figured all the PhDs in the, in the school would have the answers. And subsequently, I, I did that. I went that route. And I discovered they didn't really have any answers either. So I became my own lab rat. And at the time, carbohydrates were coming on strong. And, of, of course, the people were still picking on cholesterol and fat, so if you don't eat that stuff, what are you going to eat? You're going to eat carbohydrates. And all the health recommendations by the experts was to eat a higher carbohydrate diet and also the concept of glycogen loading, which is to store carbohydrates in your liver and your muscles, became very, very popular for athletic training. So I played around with all these different diets, and I actually had my own lab where I had a underwater weighing tank. So whenever I did any dietary experiment, I could check to see what happened exactly to my body composition. How much fat did I gain? How much muscle did I gain or or lose in, in either respective case? So it was uh, the late 1980s that I came into the Atkins diet. And, of course, Atkins' major mantra was that calories don't count. If you just 
eat all the proteins that you want, you'll be fine. Well, you don't tell that to a former 260-pound football lineman because he will eat all the meat he can. So I did, and I rapidly gained five pounds in the first week of doing this. So I knew there was something wrong with it. I didn't specifically know it was calories. And at this time, the whole idea of the calories is still yet unclear because it was argued in the scientific literature that obese people do not eat that much food. Now, this wasn't true, but this is what everybody believed. So we still hadn't had all this stuff worked out. And then there was some the development of some special techniques in the scientific laboratories that finally defined the idea that calories do count and you can actually measure people's calorie burn directly. So that helped me refine my understanding of the diet stuff. And then I was trained, very deeply trained in biochemistry. So I, I knew what was happening to all the different fuels, what would happen to them when they got in your body, what would happen to them at the level of your cell. So once I understood the biochemistry of this, it was pretty easy for me to sort of reverse engineer what it is that, that we should eat, and that's essentially what I did. And that's how I ultimately wrote the book up, when I finally wrote the book up. And I didn't write the book until 2002, and I was about 55 years old, because it took me that long to become comfortable with the idea that I really understood this stuff better than anyone else out there. And that book, that specific, you have several books, so which book are you referencing there? The, the first book I wrote was one called Alternate Diet Secrets, and it was eight and a half by 11, 600 pages. And in it, I encapsulated everything that I'd spent my life learning. And it was like, it was an autobiography. It was everything you need to know about weight control, not just about diet, because weight control is about much more than just diet. And I covered all that in there. And that's why it was so big. And then people said nobody would buy a book that big. So at, uh, a month later, I gutted it and prepared a very much smaller book that was more consumer-friendly. And then thereafter, I wrote an anti-aging book and another book about sort of the biochemistry of, of food and then moved in later on to the glycation factor. Yeah, and all these books are available, by the way, at Greg's site, buybycarbs.com. And remember, you guys that are in the Member Support Brigade, you get a discount uh, when you purchase from there. The one I'd like to kind of move into, because this is the one that fascinated me. I've, I'm obviously sold on this lifestyle because I've been living at least a, a version of it for quite a while now, and I've had great results. And other people told me that this stuff is making you fat, but when I got hold of the glycation factor, what you basically told me is this stuff is killing you, um, and, and, and in no uncertain terms. So can you explain to folks the basics of what is glycation and, and what problems it creates in the body? Okay. The fat and cholesterol theory of disease, and particularly heart disease, came out in the early 1950s. And by 1965, it was pretty well entrenched. And then finally, it got totally entrenched by 1985 by the scientific and medical community. In 1987, Dr. Anthony Cerami of the Rockefeller Institute published a paper called The Glycation Theory of Disease and Aging. I never even saw it. I never even heard the term glycation until 2003 when I was writing the anti-aging book. So what is glycation? Glycation is when you eat carbohydrates and you digest them, they all digest and become blood glucose. That glucose binds to all the proteins in your body that make you up, including your genetic material, DNA, RNA. And then 
that glycated protein binds with a glycated protein next to it, and you just literally glue yourself together. And all kinds of inflammatory reactions occur, and the reactive oxygen species form, and they go in and they destroy your mitochondria, which are the powerhouses of your cell. And it's, it's just so all of your degenerative diseases are coming from glycation. So it never was fat and cholesterol. It was always glycation, meaning it was always carbohydrates. So the carbohydrates are the real villain because they lead to this process of glycation. And there's now more than 7,000 published papers on it in the scientific literature. Could you give so, us that number again? There's how many published papers on this, even though most people have never heard of it? 7,206. Wow. I just checked on it yesterday. Keep going. I just wanted, I just wanted that to okay, get so, Yeah, so that's, just, that's, a, that's a lot of science. And, uh, but it just never got any traction, and I'm hoping to help it get some traction now with this book because this is probably the most revolutionary book ever written in the field of nutrition because it covers it and spells it all out and how these glycated proteins are, are actually killing us. And when I was reading it, Greg, I, w I started to read into how some of this stuff turns into AGEs, and I don't have the scientific retention that I guess a PhD would. So those AGEs then get broken further down and eventually form like permanent plaques in our body. I think is the way you describe it. Can you kind of describe that side of things because that that actually scared the crap out of me. Yeah, an AGE is an advanced glycation end product, and the way this thing goes is the glycated protein forms, and over a series of chemical reactions it actually becomes, in several weeks, an irreversible product. And that's that's the real damaging agent. So it's all about these advanced glycation end products. And you don't, you don't want to form these things in your body. And, of course, the only way you can avoid it is to restrict carbohydrates because that's the source of the glucose that leads to the development of the ages. Now, Greg, every time I listen to a mainstream, I call them fools, but let's call them a mainstream expert, uh, on any of these shows about diet and nutrition, whenever the low-carb, high-protein, high-fat thing comes up, they always say, but that's you know meaningless because everything that you consume eventually gets converted to sugar before you use it in your body anyway. But my understanding is that's not true of fat, that we take fat in and we use it in, its, its, in a state as fat. That's correct. You know, you don't convert fat to anything because it's already fat, and that's it. What happens is the carbohydrates get converted to fat. Interesting. So why do they say that? Why do they tell us that everything ends up as glucose in the blood anyway? Well, they don't know what they're talking about. You want an honest answer? There you go. No, I, this is not really complicated. I mean, they're all coming out of the same environment. Uh, they're all getting lectured the same way. They're all reading the same things. And the truth is not something that's really important to them. What, they're, what the whole establishment wants to do is maintain what they have. So uh, this, this was written up by uh, Thomas Kuhn in his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolution. He details how the whole whole of science is only interested in maintaining what they already know. They're not interested in new ideas. And that, of course, was a shock to me when I read the book because I thought when I was going back to graduate school it was to get new ideas, and it had nothing to do with it. My well, whole training was to just maintain the edifice as it existed. 
Because if you find something new, then somebody's entire life work can be basically devalued at that point. And there's like a vested interest by the community in holding on to what they've already proven versus asking if whether or not it's actually true. Um, because I, I mean, could you speak to people out there that are thinking this just can't be because I mean, they have this, you know, the amber waves of grain and it's all nutritious. And I mean, the whole thing's been marketed uh, to us where I, I know better and still I feel a little silly when I tell somebody, you know, wheat's not good for you, but yeah, well, same thing. I mean, that's a process that I had to go through myself because we've all been told for so long and so many times, for example, that fruits and vegetables are good for us. So I remember when I stopped eating fruit that uh, for a while it was, it was hard for me to make the adjustment to that because I still had it beat into my head for so many years that fruit is good for us. And then finally when I realized that it was not good for us, then it took me a while to adapt to that, but I finally did. Now I understand that it's not good for us. So what do you eat? What's your Because I've gone over it on the air with what I've been eating. It's a typical day. Greg Ellis wakes up. You have breakfast and lunch and dinner or snacks. And what do you eat? Typically, lately, what I've been doing when I get up is I take a couple of swigs of heavy whipping cream. And that holds me over for a couple of hours. And then my wife and I just went to lunch, and I had a half of a chicken salad sandwich. And so, you know, there's one piece of bread and chicken salad. And then she said she's cooking spaghetti tonight, and I'll probably eat the meatballs. <laughs> you sound like me. Yeah, and then throughout the day, I'll take swigs of heavy whipping cream. That's become probably my favorite favorite stuff lately. I, I use heavy cream in my coffee. I guess that kind of ends up with the same result, or do you have any problems with the caffeine in coffee? No, I don't drink coffee, but, you know, I, you figure I'm sitting there swigging half of a half of a container of this. You're not going to put that much in your coffee. No, no. I use I'll, an ounce to a cup, and I'll drink three or four cups. So there's right. three or four ounces no. in the morning. No. So I really like the heavy cream. And then meat, steaks, chicken, pork, all the standard stuff. I try and keep my carbohydrate intake probably less than 50 grams a day. About 50 grams. Well, now, it's not even a matter of trying. I'm just the foods that would would yield carbohydrates in my diet. I just don't eat them anymore. I don't care about them. I pay no attention to them. So it's just it's not a problem being low carb. Now I don't I, bother counting count the grams. I get a ton of people that are all freaked out over it's going to cause ketosis if I eat that much protein. Um, can you talk about that because it's just like I'm like, well, that's actually the kind of the state you actually want to get into if you're a fat guy. The, um, the amount of mythology that exists out there is just so completely overwhelming. And I've learned that since I started doing a bunch of videos on my website because I get comments from people. And people are absolutely, completely confused. And they're very interested in these topics, but they don't, they're clueless. They have no idea. And if you go to the medical community, they'll tell you that ketosis is not something you, you want to have happen. Now, there's two types of ketosis. There's pathological and there's physiological. Pathological is when you're sick. You can't, the pancreas can't produce insulin anymore. And ketone bodies are made in the liver from free fatty acids that have been released from the fat cell. And ketones are made up of four carbon molecules. Actually, you want to be in ketosis because ketones are the primary fuel of the body. 
but you can't get into ketosis if you're eating a significant amount of carbohydrates because they will in turn cause a release of insulin from the pancreas. And insulin's primary job is to slow the release of fat from the fat cell. So since the fat coming from the fat cell is the source of the ketones, then you won't make the ketones if you shut down the fat release. So that, that's how that works. And on that note, when I was uh, listening to one of your podcasts, you were talking about the glycemic index. And, of course, mm-hmm. people are living and dying by the glycemic index today. It's like the, the cornerstone of, you know, 12 bestseller books on diet and nutrition. And basically you're saying that the glycemic index is, is nonsense. You, do you want to explain your view on that? Uh, it, it's completely useless because if you take the, a food with, that has, say, the lowest glycemic index of all of the foods, all the things that we're actually concerned about, which is our ability to release fat from the fat cell, burn fat as a source of fuel, that will all be shut down and changed if, when the insulin and the insulin levels are at a level way below what would occur if you consumed that lowest glycemic index food. So it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. And it's important to understand the glycemic index was never had never had anything to do with insulin. It only had something to do with, with sugar. <clears throat> and it does not matter what the so-called spike of glucose is in the blood because it's irrelevant because all the stuff we're interested in physiologically occurs way below the glucose levels that are popping up. So if one food spikes your glucose up to 155 milligrams per deciliter, another one goes to 220, doesn't matter. Everything we're interested in has been going on way below those levels. Because it's really about the, it's really about the insulin level, and I remember a term like it, uh, a figure you gave was like 18 microliters of insulin, and once you go over that, your fat burning shuts down. That's right. Your fat burning is shut down. You can't you can't burn fat, and you're at, when you get up around 30 microunits of uh, insulin, you're maximizing the conversion of carbohydrates into body fat. So the so there's a big argument between the proponents of the glycemic index, the developers of it from the University of Toronto, and then the, the group in California from Gerald Reven's laboratory, and they argued back and forth because the guys from Toronto wanted to have this promoted as a way to help diabetics control their blood sugar level, but there was no evidence to support the, the fact that that would help in any way. And these two labs just argued back and forth, and Reven's group said, look, it's, 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 it's interesting that there are different levels of glucose that are appearing in the blood from these different foods, but it is of no physiological significance. It's of interest, but it's of no physiological interest at all. It doesn't mean anything. And then the other problem is people do not understand the nature of the glycemic index and how it's tested. So you'll see people out there putting together recipes with different foods that have different glycemic indexes. But the glycemic index is a test of a 50-gram portion of a particular food. That's it. That's the actual glycemic index. So what does it matter if you make a recipe of it that has nothing to do with the glycemic index? 
I, 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 that's why you're here. Cause I couldn't actually <laughs> put it that way. I mean, that's exactly, it's exactly factual. And I mean, I guess what people really need to know is what, how much carbohydrate intake does it take to go over that, uh, 18 microliter level of insulin in the body for the average person? And where should it be? Like your rest, like I wake up in the morning, where should my insulin level be? What's the highest it should probably end up during the day? What's healthy? What's, and what, what will push me out of that? Where's, what's the thresholds, I guess? The, the low carbohydrate diet will lead to insulin levels in the morning where they're down around six or seven or eight. And the, and then they, they rise up from there, up to 12, 13, 14, and certainly even, even higher, much higher than in an obese person on a high carb diet, they could go up to 500 micro units. So to me, there's no real healthy level of insulin. I, I, you don't really want to be seeing insulin in your blood. So the best thing to do is keep it as low as possible. And that's why you just have to restrict your carbohydrates or it will go up. Yeah. I mean, I used to get my, I used to drive my wife crazy. If I would forget to eat and we would leave the house and I was on a normal American diet and I would go a certain level of fasting and I would get sweaty and shaky and irritable and generally turn into a complete ass. Right, I'd like, I've got to go eat. I've got to go eat. Since I've been doing this, that hasn't happened. A, I, the first week took a little adjustment, but after that, that has not happened to me even one time. It's because you've become a fat burner. Before that, you were a carbohydrate or glucose burner. And when your glucose levels would drop in the blood, then everything would fall to hell in the handcart. So basically what you're telling me is you can be in a starvation state, have plenty of fat for the body to burn, right? But your body's right. saying, no, no, give me some carbohydrate. I don't want to convert that fat over because I can't do it. So even though you're in a fasted state, if you don't stay there for a very long time, the body will react and force you into consuming more carbohydrates or cause the behaviors maybe better than force. Yeah. Yep. Carbohydrate burning begets its own burning. It just causes you to eat more carbohydrates because now you're – see, you're, you can only – you have specific enzyme systems that process foodstuffs, and the body doesn't keep what it's not using. So if you're largely a carbohydrate eater, you're going to get the enzyme systems that process carbohydrates, and the ones that process fat and ketones are going to – be diminished and if you then restrict your carbohydrates and eat more fat you don't have the enzymes now to process that fat and that of course is what is one of the worst things about the Atkins version of a low carbohydrate diet because he immediately takes you from wherever you are which is generally as a high carb eater and he has you go down to about 20 grams of carbohydrate a day now you You've got no fuel to burn because you can't really process the fat you're eating or the fat that's on your body because you don't have the enzymes to do it. So that's why most people who go in the Atkins diet will quit it after about three days because they feel so awful. They have no energy. They're depressed. They're cold. They're lethargic. And it's all because they have no fuel. So you're more of a, you believe that we should phase into that? Because I kind of did it cold turkey, and I just advised people to do it cold turkey yesterday. So is I wrong? Should we kind of phase into that type of a? No, it, it will work, but you need to understand what the hell is going to happen to you when you do it that way. 
If you take the heroin addict off the heroin, he's going to retch around and throw up and feel really bad for a week. Yeah, and you will suffer. So, but, and of course, he doesn't tell you that. Atkins doesn't tell you any of that, that that's going to happen to you. So when I write up how to do the low-carb diet right, I tell people what to expect. Now, you can go do it like that, but you are going to feel like hell because you can't process fat fuel in those early couple days to couple weeks of going on the diet. So there's no need to, to be crazy about it. Just gradually or over several weeks' time, begin to restrict your carbohydrate intake. That'll give the body time to adjust and adapt and say, okay, this is my new diet. Do you, I mean, from reading your book, what the, the, the view I got was that if I am in a fat-deprived state and I'm not getting enough fat in my diet, not so much so that I'm going to die because without any fat will die, but if I, if I am getting almost all of my calories from carbohydrates, my body actually sees that as, as a, a starvation state. Like, this is the best we can do, so we better turn it into fat and store it up because this guy's going to die because he's not getting the right kind of food. I know I'm taking it all non-sciencey, but that's that's kind of what I got out of it. Like, the body is not happy that it's being given carbohydrates, and it's building up as much fat reserves as it can because it figures we're going into a starvation uh, lifestyle, even though we're overfeeding it's not, ourselves. It's not, it, it's not a function of what it figures. It's a function of what our basic biochemistry is. This stuff just proceeds regardless of what you think or what your body thinks about. It's automatically done. Food has two choices. It can either be burned or it can be stored. And food that is stored becomes fat. And the the storage mode for the body is one of a high-carbohydrate intake in the face of higher insulin levels and hormone levels that occur in response to the high-carb intake. And, And under those conditions you're going to store most of your food as fuel, but it won't be used as fuel because it's getting stored. You, you can't access it anymore. So carbohydrates that are converted to fat are not readily released from the fat cell. And then your blood clears the fuel, and then you get hungry, and you're an animal, so you say, well, gee, I'm hungry. I, I feel the sensation, therefore I should eat. So you eat more carbohydrates and you get fatter yet. So at, now what's happening in reality is you're getting fat in the face of starvation because there's no fuel bathing your cells. So now they're starving and they send the feeding signal to the brain and then you go and pay attention to that as the animal you are and you go ahead and eat more food, which if it's still high in carbohydrate, you're going to get fatter yet. So that's one reason why the obesity epidemic is is moving forward so rapidly is because we're all storing all this carbohydrate we're eating as fat. Let's talk about some of the other things other than just the, the weight issue. I've gotten questions from people that I'm just like, I, I can't answer that. Uh, here's one that came in for the show I did yesterday that I kind of deferred to you. He says, I have ulcerative colitis, and I've been considering starting a low-carb diet to try and help manage this. Could going low-carb help with colon issues in general, uh, EXP, Crohn's, IBS, ulcerative colitis, et cetera. Fish oils help me reduce the swelling, but I wonder if probiotics would help to heal the, the, the inside. Basically, I think he means his guts there. So, I mean, do people with those types of autoimmune inflammatory diseases benefit from doing this? Is, is that type of thing not just fatness, but inflammation caused by these high-carbohydrate intakes? Yeah, the inflammation is caused by the high-carb intake. It's caused by the glycation process. These conditions are not autoimmune conditions. The body's doing exactly what you would expect it to do. It's, it's inflaming in an effort to try and heal itself. 
the body's not not this stupid that after 50 million years or however long we've been around, all of a sudden in the last 50 years we develop all these autoimmune diseases. They're not autoimmune diseases at all. So the low carb, I, I can I can fix almost every any bowel problem by using a low carb diet. Crohn's, it doesn't matter. I've, I've fixed them all. So colitis means inflammation of the colon. What's the inflammation coming from? It's coming from the carbohydrates, the glucose. So sure you can, and you don't need all that other crap. You know, the probiotics, you just get it off the carbs. There's, uh, we've talked about three sources of calories today, uh, on and off, fat, protein, and carbohydrates. There's a, there's another one that really doesn't quite fit. I guess it gets classified as a carbohydrate by some, but it's alcohol. What are your thoughts mm-hmm. on alcohol? Because I know you have a unique view of that. One I find quite uh, refreshing, by the way. Okay. Uh, I drink a lot of alcohol. I like alcohol. It doesn't, it doesn't convert into a glycated protein and, there's so much mythology out there. You know, during World War II, the French made sure there were two bottles of wine available for the soldiers every day and one bottle of wine for the people. We know that alcohol is one of the primary things that makes us healthy. And that's been well represented in science over the years. So when we get away from the effort of our scientific community and our religious community to say how bad alcohol is for us, we find out that it's one of the healthiest things you can do is to drink alcohol. I mean, I know for a fact when I was in uh, in, in the first Gulf War and we would get a chance, because it's a multinational coalition, that some of the French troops in their MREs, you know, their rations, they still don't mm-hmm. get a big bottle, but they get like, you know, like one of those bottles, like, you know, when you buy a little four-pack of mini bottles of wine, that still comes right. in a lot of their rations to, to this day. Yep, well, they get the, the French get it. <laughs> so alcohol is good for us. So there's certain forms, though. I mean, like because some beers are actually really high in carbohydrates from the residual sugars. So are there things yeah, that make right. sense? But it doesn't really matter what alcohol you consume. But is it is it, but, but I mean, if I'm drinking a Sam Adams and it's got 30 grams of carbohydrate in one. Oh well, yeah, yeah. I mean, as long as it's low, it's it's low in carbohydrate, you're alright. It doesn't matter whether it's it's hard stuff or wine or whatever. Because I just don't want somebody going out and slamming a six-pack every night of a, of a high-gravity beer and then whining when their gut expands because it no, no. it's a source of carbs then. But, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, I hardly, I, hardly, I hardly ever even drink a beer. Really? That's hard for me to give yeah. up. I just try to go in moderation on it, though. It's one of my cheats. Yeah, I, just, I just don't like it that much. I got you. I got you. So um, another one I had for you is... I hear a lot of this stuff, and I'll tell you where I feel about it. You tell me what you think. There's a lot of questions that have been coming into me lately about this eat right for your type stuff. I read that book years ago when we moved. I think I gave it to half, you know, sold it to half price books or something and eliminated it from my library. I think there might be something there, but to me, we're all as human beings far more alike than we're different, whether you're A, B, or A, or O. Because the whole concept there is like, and it's easy for me to just say, Oh, okay, because I'm an O, and we're supposed to be the you know the, uh, hunter-gatherer types with a type O. Do you put any credence in that at all? None, zero, nothing, not at all. Great, because you're even you're even more skeptical than I am on it. I love it. Well, but no, I mean, like, if you if you were to go to the National Library of Medicine and say, all right, let's use this as our basic framework. Let's see if there's actually any science on this. So if you search. Uh, blood type and weight control, not one research paper will come up. If you search, for example, calories in weight control, you'll get 20,000 papers. 
So the research community hasn't even bothered looking at it because they know it has nothing to do with anything. It was all made up. Most of the books out there on weight control are all made up anyway. It's just this author's idea of the way it should be. You look at the books in the, uh, written by these vegetarian zealots. It's, it's just it's so ridiculous. Now, I just went through this with a, a vegetarian the other day, and they, they don't argue from a point of view of science. They argue from a point of view of things like, oh, look at the length of our intestine, or why would you eat dead animal flesh? Well, that's not scientific. It has nothing to do with anything. So if I bring up something scientific and talk about the formation of fat from carbohydrates, because by definition, a vegetarian diet is going to be high in carbohydrate. One gal I talked to had the audacity to argue that the diet was not high in carbohydrate, and that's just absurd. So there is a compound in the cells of your body, and once the carbohydrate gets converted into this compound, that compound has no choice other than to become fat, and that compound is coming from carbohydrates. So the vegetarians make these arguments that really have nothing to do with how things actually work in the body, how the biochemistry works. And they don't want to hear about that because their whole goal is to support their existing belief system in the healthfulness of the vegetarian diet. And they argue, like recently, that a lot of them are saying to me, did you read the China study? Well, the China study was all fabricated by a vegetarian zealot. And, of course, these people who are saying read that study, they don't have the training or the background to analyze what's wrong with the China study, how the statistics are flawed, how the arguments are all flawed, and how a lot of the data was just made up by this guy. So they just read it, believe it, and that's it because it supports their position. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because every single time I bring this subject up on my blog, I get like 15 different comments, Amy, you read the China study. I'm like... I, I really don't think that I do, um, and, and I think that a lot of this, the, the mainstream science out there that gets released to the public is always released with an agenda, and no matter how much real research has been done by actual researchers, if it doesn't sell something, uh, if it doesn't convince us that gruel is good for us, if it doesn't maintain the status quo, it just doesn't get made into mainstream uh, information. That's right. And all the, and I've written about this, the whole idea of the statistical analysis they use. They use a statistical analysis that analyzes your risk of getting something. And risk is, is far different than your actual rate. And the way they play this game, let's say they want to prove the efficacy of a low-fat diet, and they have a study group where two people out of 100 who are eating meat have a heart attack, and the other group is one person out of a hundred. So the actual difference between the two groups is one percent. It's absolutely meaningless. Well, they cross out the denominator. They cross out the hundred of each group, and they compare two to one. So they say twice as many did, right? Yeah, now it's a hundred percent. And that's what all, 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 all the published papers today use risk analysis to do their work, and it's it's doesn't make anything transparent, and all the researchers, are, they're all doing the same thing, and if they did not do it, there would be no studies. So whenever you see the word, and then, of course, the news media picks it up, 
and they pick up what was what was written that you're, if you drink a glass of alcohol, you have a 15% increase in your risk of getting XYZ. And if you really had the numbers, you, it might be one-tenth of 1%. Again, meaningless. At that level, so, it would be a statistical anomaly that the, the focus group or the control group wasn't large enough that there's got to be some factor that gets thrown out as, uh, like any, even just a political poll, they say there's an error factor in there, and anything inside that error factor has to be a wash. But they don't right. tell you that. They just extrapolate to get rid of the denominator, as you said. Sure. <laughs> uh, unbelievable. Yeah, because if you get like 50%, you're down to a fractional of a percent of reality. Yeah, yeah. It's, the whole thing is unbelievable. Uh, it's uh, another thing you were talking about earlier. How cholesterol is not bad, and, and I'm, we're looking at you know, like the cholesterol we consume. So if I, I go eat a couple dozen oysters, there's a high cholesterol count there, but it hasn't just it hasn't done anything to really harm me other than if the oysters are from bad water or something like that. But what about because I, I keep getting people, Jack, what's happening to your cholesterol levels? And I'm like, I really don't care unless they get stupid out of whack. Is there mythology around that about blood cholesterol levels, or do you think that you know if your cholesterol is over one thirty or whatever the number is, all of a sudden we should be on statins? No, it's irrelevant. It doesn't mean anything. I don't pay any attention to it whatsoever. It's never proven to be a problem. You know what cholesterol does? Here's what happens: the glycated protein comes in, locks itself into the blood vessel damages the blood vessel, starts creating holes and perforations, and the cholesterol comes in to plug up the hole. That's the purpose of the cholesterol, to plug up the damage being caused by the glycated protein. So when they went in there and found all this cholesterol in there, they just blamed the cholesterol because they didn't know anything about glycated proteins. So yeah. Glycated... Does homocysteine play a role there? Is that is that part of that process? I mean, all of this stuff is just another effort to uh, dredge up the idea that so many things are really important to this heart disease issue, which really aren't important at all. Is there a relationship between homocysteine and that? Sure there is, but how much? I don't know. I don't buy into it. Okay, fair enough. But you're basically saying that the arterial walls are damaged by our diet, and then the cholesterol has a place to cling to and a hole to try to fill. And if there was no damage to the blood vessel at all, if we took a baby and gave a baby a teaspoonful of lard, that there would be not any adherence to their blood vessel walls at all because there's nothing for it to hold on to. Well, no, it's not going to attempt to go under the blood vessel wall. The lard will be metabolized as a source of energy. Very That's good. what will happen to it. And then if, if there is damage to the vessel wall, then the cholesterol will come in and try and plug it up like the little Dutch boy sticking his finger in the dike. So that's that how that whole patch. thing works. Yeah. So, of course, none of that ever got out because once they said, so then they just make up all these stories. And it just keeps on going ad nauseum with all these research papers coming out and all in an effort to support the ongoing and existing argument <laughs> because we can't have any new information coming in. We can't have it. It'll ruin the old information. What about the link between dietary fat and heart disease? That's that's like so dogmatic that everybody knows that's true. Yeah, well, everybody thinks it's true. It has nothing to do with anything at all. Fat is only bad when it, when it's consumed in the presence of carbohydrate. 
I got, this, I got a research paper sitting right here, it says. And this was published in the uh, in 2010 in a journal called Lipids. And it says, limited effect of dietary saturated fat on plasma saturated fat in the context of a low-carbohydrate diet. So that means it's if you're in a low-carbohydrate diet, the, uh, the saturated fat, the fat you're eating, is not a problem. Uh, they, they go in their conclusions. They say, persistence of recommendations in the face of continued failure of large trials to show an effect of saturated fat remains one of the strange anomalies in current medical science. So this is the kind of stuff that's beginning to come out in, in the research journals, published in, in the scientific journals, as we get more into this uh, the, the study of the low-carbohydrate. See, all, so much of this stuff with the low-carb diet was done, but typically researchers rarely go back 10 years in the literature. So the stuff that's been coming out in the last 5 or 10 years is just reproducing much of what happened during the previous five decades, and they act as if none of this stuff was ever known. We've known since 1950 that the body very aggressively converts carbohydrate into fat. So if that idea had gotten out, this whole fat juggernaut would have never happened. We said, well, why are we worried about Why We we shouldn't be eating carbohydrate because that's what's going to really make us fat. But that never got out. Yeah, I mean, I've always just looked at the natural world, right? And if I say name a fat animal. Right? Tell me an animal that you think of when I say fat animal, and people say, well, like a hippo or an elephant or a buffalo or a cow. And then I'll say, well, name a fat carnivore. Hmm. Right? And there isn't one. Anything no. that eats meat in the natural world, other than human beings, is lean. And they'll say, right. well, they're running around all the time. And I'm like, a lion doesn't run around all the time. It lays on its ass all the time. It gets right. up and kills something, and then it goes back to laying on its ass. It stretches. You know, I mean, that's what it does. It does it. You know, lions aren't doing crunches. Right. It's not what they do. And, and every single animal I can think of that carries a lot of fat on its body is a herbivore, and it's consumed and eaten by a carnivore. Right. It, I, I just can't get around that, and I don't understand how people have such resistance to it. I have a question here that came in for the show I did yesterday, though, uh, uh, Dr. Ellis, and I didn't want to touch this one. Uh, I'm going to read the whole thing to you, and then you can... You can decide how you want to handle it. Could the release of body fat, could the body, could loss of body fat release accumulated toxins in the bloodstream? Could the body's transition from burning carbs to burning fat harm a baby it, it, when someone's pregnant? Is there anything that we need to be aware of when starting to eat low carb during a pregnancy? Uh, well, again, it depends on how you how you enter into the low-carb diet. Now, you're bringing up another really interesting point, and this point is is the basis of a new book I'm writing. And I'm going, we're looking for publishers right now. And do you know what a persistent organic pollutant is? I'm not sure what you mean by that. <laughs> I can take a stab, but I'd let you explain it. I think you'll do better. Do you know what DDT is and PCBs are? Absolutely. Absolutely, okay. and glyphosate, so and all that other stuff, right? So these are called persistent organic pollutants. The body doesn't want these things floating around, and they're all able to enter into the body fat, and that's what they do. They enter into the body fat, and which sort of sequesters them and gets them out of the circulation where they can't damage 
the target tissues that they might be wanting to, to go. The fat is not the target tissue. The fat is just the place where these toxins go. And there is now, and I just found this myself two months ago, information implicating persistent organic pollutants as the, one of the major causes of the obesity epidemic. Interesting. Because, I mean, one of the, just let me, before you go on, I just want to give you something that, like, this audience hears from me all the time. One of the big reasons, even if I was going to eat carbs, I won't touch corn products, soy products, uh, and most of the products that come out of our modern agriculture system is that the seeds today are genetically modified, and that's, you can have that debate one way or the other all we want, but the, it's what they do it, why they modify them. They modify them so they can be sprayed with things like atrazine and glyphosate, which are herbicides. And then these right. things are taken into the plant, right? And then you can't, you can't wash this off. It's become part of the biochemistry of the plant. So not only are we getting a high dose of carbohydrate, we're getting a high dose of biocide every time we eat a corn chip, uh, every time right. we eat a product with soy in it. So I'll let you go on. I just want to let you know that the audience is very, very aware of that risk and that concern. So maybe you can touch on it as you go through this. Yeah, yeah that's what it's... It's... In my clinical practice, that's what I've been doing for the last 17 years. I've been detoxing people of environmental pollutants because I know that the pollutants are a major cause of a lot of health problems that people suffer from. So that's, this is another good reason why you might want to go slowly into carbohydrate restriction so you don't start dumping all the stored body fat out into your blood along with all the chemicals. You want to just gradually do that and allow an adaptation to go on within the liver and the kidneys because they're the primary organs of detox where the enzymes that they use to detox these pollutants have an opportunity to increase in quantity and rate of action. So that's a, another plus for doing the, dumping into the low-carb diet slowly. Do you think that some of the people that have done Protein Power or Atkins or something like that that have just said, I felt too much like crap, this just doesn't work for me, that even though there's an adjustment to going to the protein, that maybe that could have been more of what was hitting them is the detoxification? Because if you're detoxing, it's, that's why people go to clinics to do it off of drugs. It sucks. Well, I think, yeah, clearly it's, it's a combination of if you go into the low-carb diet quickly, and you remove your primary source of fuel, you are going to feel like hell. But if you also do that and add into the blood a lot of these persistent organic pollutants, you've got another reason for feeling like hell. So I think both of these things are very operative, and that's why I think you have to be more careful about how you embark on the low-carb diet. And I'm also wondering how it might affect like this perception. I get a lot of people saying, look, my grandparents ate lots of potatoes, and they ate steak, and they ate rice, and they ate homemade bread, and they didn't get fat the way we do today. And my thought is, well, they didn't have less money, and so they ate less of it, and they probably worked 16-hour days. But is, is but are you basically saying that these, these new pollutants can be aggravating circumstances that make a bad situation worse? Or the actually the cause of the obesity, or just a, an additional cause. I mean, where's the what's the real role here? Well, the, the, what you said is all true. We're far less physically active today than we were 90 years ago, and in the last 25 or so years, the average person is consuming 500 more calories a day. So we're eating more food, 
And, of course, the diet is much higher in carbohydrate than it was. We used to eat more eggs and animal products and things 60, 70 years ago. And the availability of carbohydrates are all around us. So that, of course, brings us to the issue of food is either burned or it's stored. And we're storing a lot more food as as fat, and that, of course, is driving up food consumption because we're far hungrier than we were. And I think the important point to understand is it's not a real hunger. I mean, you're, you really are hungry, but it's, it's, it's that your food is getting stored rather than oxidized, and it's not available to be burned. And when you can't burn your fuel, that creates a lot of problems. So it's a multifactorial problem. It's, it's not simple. Uh, I've been very simple about it for years and years and years that it's all about the calories you consume versus the calories you burn. That's still operative. So the fact now that we can implicate the persistent organic pollutants in this somehow leads to an interesting thought and idea about how and what the interrelationship is between the calorie theory and now the idea that, that pollutants are a major cause of obesity. You bring the calories up again, and I kind of want to touch on that with you. We talked about it offline. My statement to people is when you're living a low-carb lifestyle, that calories don't matter, and I don't really mean it that way. Um, you, you know, you mentioned that you eat like pounds of meat at a sitting if you'll just sit down and eat as much as you want. And to me, what happened was that I would sit down with a ribeye steak that I would typically eat the entire steak, eat a big old pile of broccoli, and eat an entire baked potato. I took the baked potato and threw it away, right, and didn't eat the baked potato. In the absence of those carbohydrates, once I did this for a few weeks, what would happen is I'd get down to, like, you know, a fairly large chunk of the steak is still there, and I didn't want to eat anymore, the trigger mechanism being. So I guess calories count for everyone, but in a practical state, I think for many people you get to where if you're getting the results you want, maybe you don't have to count them uh, meticulously, I guess, is, is the way I feel. Well, that's the, the important point, if you're getting the results that you want. So calories do count. It, it, they are important. And the key is that, let's say, the question is, is there a model out there for the low-carbohydrate diet not to work in weight control? And the model is, of course, the Atkins version of the low-carb diet because there's no question that there, is a, there are people who succeed following the Atkins version of the low-carb diet, but it's really a small percentage. Uh, somebody might lose 10, uh, a small percentage could lose 40 or 50 pounds. That, that happens. But most people lose 5 to 10 pounds, and that's it. Then they hit the wall. They don't lose anymore, and that is the reason why most people go off the low-carb diet, because there has been no emphasis on the importance of calories. So what they have to, and there's adaptations that occur when you lose weight in your in your metabolic system. Your your calorie needs decrease, and you've got to be able to make the adjustments for that. But no one ever taught that. I'm the only one uh, that I know of who ever taught that in my book, and actually put some numbers to the idea of what happens to the changes in your meta- metabolic rates. And then from this, you look at the calorie intake. And then you can you can continue to lose weight to reach your goals, but you have to continually adjust, not not so much the, the carbohydrate intake. The, the way Atkins dealt with this, he called the term 
critical carbohydrate intake. So when you hit the wall and you quit losing and you were living on 40 grams of carbohydrate a day, he cut you back down to 35, as if reducing five more grams of carbohydrate a day would make an impact on your weight. And he'd tell you to piss on the ketone sticks to make sure ketones were, were coming out of the body. Problem is, after about three weeks on a low-carb diet, you're now going to burn all the ketones as a source of fuel. So there's no ketones in your urine that will show up in the ketone stick. But you're not told that either. So this becomes another source of failure. So he, he leaves some up. But he, you know, the guy was a cardiologist. He wasn't a biochemist. And he, he made this diet up based on no science whatsoever. He just made it up. Okay, here's the four phases of my diet, the induction phase, da-da-da-da, and on and on it went. And even in the new book written by these three scientists, they produced his diet verbatim from 1972. But the guys who are jumping into the low-carb diet, at least the scientists and the medical doctors now, are all relatively new to it over the last maybe five or ten years, and they have no real practical experience in applying it because they never really lived it. So they become a source of misinformation. I also think a lot of people, like, didn't even read the book and thought they were doing it. I mean, I, I've heard some things where they just go, what, really? Like, my sister-in-law one time, this is several years ago, she said, oh, yeah, that low-carb diet thing, that's over. No one's doing that anymore. I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, well, I ordered stuff for everybody at work, right? Like, so I ordered lunches in and everything, and I, I remember when they were doing it, and now they're not. I said, well, how do you know they were and they weren't? She goes, oh, back then, everybody was ordering things on whole wheat bread and things like sun chips, and now they're ordering it again on white bread and eating potato chips. And I'm like, that's, that's, that, there's, and that was my answer. I don't even know what to say to that, but I think there's people that actually believe it. They were low-carbing it by eating whole grain. Because so there's why, there. when I wrote the book Net, Net Carb Scam, they came out with this idea of having net carbs. And the idea of that is if that, that there were some carbs that did not count as carbs. So people who thought they were consuming an 80-gram carbohydrate diet a day were actually eating 250 grams. And, of course, that's why the low-carb diet when it became popular in 2002, and by 2004 it was essentially dead because nobody was losing any weight, because everybody was thinking they were not eating carbs when, in fact, they were. And then the food companies jumped on it, and they tried to get on it, and they, they're the ones that valued this idea of net carbs. That, that, that's what matters. And it's true that we can't digest fiber, so those carb calories and fiber don't count. But they're using all these other substitutes and they're making up stories about what carbs count and what carbs don't count. And that's what caused me to write that book, so when the doc, when the doctor eats th that that group, uh, Mary and Dan or whatever they are, um, when they say if you're looking at a carbohydrate count and it's at seven grams of carbohydrate, three grams of fiber, well that's actually four grams uh, of true carbohydrate. That part's true. It's when they right. start adding all this other crap into it and saying, well this is a sugar alcohol or this is a exactly. and it's all BS to make these diet products when the diet product was a piece of steak. Right. <laughs> Interesting. This is this is a great, Greg. I want to, you know, before we we wrap up, I do want to touch a little bit on the work you've done with autism. Uh, that's okay. a pretty hot topic amongst my community. I mean, we've been told by medical science autism is genetic. You're born that yes. way, and we can do some things to try to socialize and give them some therapy. But basically, it's a permanent state that's genetically based. 
Is that true or? I don't think it's true because most kids are not diagnosed as autistic until they're 12 to 36 months of age. And what my own, my own insight into what autism is, is that it's a post-traumatic stress syndrome. So in other words, little Johnny's born and he, like little Bobby, starts getting all his vaccines and he gets his ear infections and he gets his antibiotics. And all this stuff starts piling up in his body. And he's a little bit, a little bit weaker than Bobby. Bobby can take the head. He can take the two by four over the head, but little Johnny can't take it. So little Johnny's core self realizes that its survival is at stake. And when that occurs, the old primordial reptilian brain takes over. And the reptilian brain is hardwired for survival. So in other words, you and I are walking down the uh, the jungle streets, and we're having a conversation. All of a sudden, a lion comes out. Our conversation is done. And anything matters right now is survival. And that reptilian brain takes over and starts putting defensive things in place. So when the reptilian brain takes over, more or less, the new brain, the one where language is and where cognition is, <clears throat> where emotions are, that is to some degree shut down. And now you have an autistic child. So the, the autism is a function of the survival brain being turned on, and the cause of that is all the different shocks that the body receives, such as vaccines and antibiotics. Uh, do I think vaccines are involved? Sure I do. Do I think they're the sole cause? No, I don't. So you become completely, this little kid becomes completely toxic, and at the level of his biochemistry, everything shuts down. So, of course, what they do is they come in with all these learning-based programs with music and other kinds of therapeutics directed at the new brain, which is sort of shut down. And that only becomes more stress for the kid, and he becomes even more autistic. And that's why these, these programs working at the level of the new brain don't work. The kids never improve. They never change. Because they're not engaging the right part of the mental process. Uh, on, the, on the vaccines, this is where I have kind of like, I, I'm, I have a real hard time figuring out what side to come down on. There's no question in my mind, for instance, that when we came up with a polio vaccine, we saved a lot of people from getting polio. On the other hand, I look at, like, there's a vaccine for flipping everything now, and it's like we give every vaccine there is in high-frequency dosage to children when they're still infants, and to me, there's, there's, is, is there a middle ground, or are you just saying we shouldn't be vaccinating people at all? W where are you on this? Well, I've studied vaccines, and there is no evidence that they stopped any diseases at all. In fact, all these diseases that they say the vaccines helped with were all disappearing before the vaccination program came into play. And so I, I didn't vaccinate my kids, so I'm not a proponent of vaccines. And then there's all these other things like the, the frequency and the quantity that they're getting. How much can you take? That, that's a question that's never been asked. And this whole thing has been a massive cover-up. If you look at the work that Robert Kennedy Jr. did on this, uh, where he, he showed that this whole thing was a massive cover-up. So when the uh, ILM comes out and says, we, we know the vaccines don't cause autism, it's just, it's all a lie. You know, it's like the whole idea that fat and cholesterol cause heart disease. It's just, it's just lies. So... Obviously, you can probably tell by now in this conversation that I'm fairly radical in my thinking. <laughs> That's okay. This. But I have, I've studied all this stuff extensively, 
And most of what I have to say about it is not my opinion, but it's based on, on the science that's available to us. I mean, my, my wife um, was a nurse for over 20 years, and she's been researching this because I've been telling her a lot of this stuff over the years, and it's been very hard for her to accept because you're trained to believe it. And every teacher and every doctor you work with and every drug rep you talk to says the same thing. But she was doing some research recently on the flu vaccine, and they have this, this flu vaccine for the elderly, and they report, and this is on Dr. Merkel's site, and it said they report that it has, it's, it has twice the level of efficacy for older people who might need more. But when you actually drilled down and figured out what was twice the effect on, it was the immunoresponse, not twice as effective in preventing the flu. Right. Just more voodoo like you were talking about earlier, I guess. Yeah, they just manipulate the, the statistics. They use whatever statistics they can to make themselves seem scientific. And the thing they, they primarily are interested in doing is avoiding making the whole thing transparent. So on uh, autism, you mentioned people like light and music therapy and all these things. What is your approach? What do you do when someone brings their child to you and says, hey, my child's been diagnosed with autism. Whatever we're doing is not working. Where do we go from here? I try and go into the level of the cell and clean up the toxins, the environmental pollutants. Also stimulate the function of the liver and kidneys and the detox organs because I think the basic thing you've got to do is rebuild the structural health of this child first and foremost before you do anything else. So when the child becomes, starts getting cleaned up and things become more accessible, then you can go in with these other type of therapeutics and you might get them to work. So you're not saying the therapies in of themselves are bad. You're just saying it's like, I don't know if I, it, it, putting a Band-Aid on a wound will help protect it from becoming infected, but if it's already got gangrene and I stick a, ba a Band-Aid on it, it it's just going to hide the infection. Yes, that's right. Okay. You've got to introduce these things when they're appropriate. But the, the way I work with autism is very unusual, and you don't have anybody else out there doing what it is I do. So the only thing you have available to yourself now are these therapies offered up by the mainstream, which suggests that there's a damaged part of the brain, not that you have heavy metal toxicity and chemical to toxicity and you're suffering from an overload of stressors which in turn has made the body go into a self-preservation mode and turn on the reptilian brain. So what we've got to do is turn off the reptilian brain, and you're not going to do that with music therapy. <laughs> yeah, I guess that makes sense. I mean, would you think that there is there any level of like, so we've got these carbohydrate-induced uh, fat parents with all of these toxins in their bodies now making children, so the children are being born, you know, like the vaccines are probably not helping, but you were saying like, you know, Johnny's not as strong as, as Tommy, right? So that yeah, I mean, these children are being born into a more weak state because their parents are sick even right. when they think they're healthy? Right. We all have a different level of reserve capacity, and that is our ability to tolerate different stressors, and none of that's appreciated. We're all, we're all treated as if we're exactly the same. And you you hear the expression all the time, oh, but we're all so different. Are we? you got three legs and i got two? <laughs> you know, we, we, may, we, we may vary, we do vary, but we are not in any way different, or there'd be no textbook of biochemistry, no textbook of physiology. The fact that there is a textbook means that there is enough that is common to us that we can write it all down in a textbook. Yeah, I appreciate that. 
Yeah, yesterday when I was asked about the eat right for your tithing and I gave my opinion on it, I said if we were that different, a doctor would have to learn how to – a human doctor would have to be more like a veterinarian. A veterinarian needs to know how to work on a cat and a dog and, and a gerbil, right, where a, a yeah. human doctor learns to work on a human. And if we were that different based on our blood type, you would have to learn how do I work on an O, how do I work on an AB negative, how do I work on a, an A positive, and we, we don't because we're basically all the same. That's exactly right. But those kinds of, of, shall we say, simplistic or realistic ideas are not a part of the public's view of all this stuff. That's why everybody's so confused, because we're not work, working from a basic set of, of rules and understandings. We've got this idea that we're just all different, and it's just not true. What's, what's been your success rate with autistic children? I mean, percentage-wise, that it's well, some major, some improvement, major improvement, complete improvement. Yeah, summer, it, it, when I started with them back in 1996, it took me a long while to learn about them, and I subsequently discovered that people will jump from therapy to therapy to therapy, and it takes a while for me to do what it is I do, and most people will never stick to it. So of those who stuck with me, I've had very good success rates. In fact, I had a kid in here on Sunday who is now in his freshman year of college. And he was told by a big autism doctor down in uh, Washington that he, he, he could go to any school he wanted. If he wanted to go to Harvard, he'd go to Harvard. And this kid was told, or parents were told, that the kid was going to die when he was five because he was diagnosed with failure to thrive. And they were thinking he just simply was not going to make it. Wow, wow, well, that's that's. Uh, uh, thank you for doing that work. I mean, that's all I can say when I hear things like that. And uh, thank you for being on the show today. I, I have a feeling, uh, Doctor Ellis, that this show is going to provoke a lot of questions from the audience. Things that I didn't think of as we were going through this, and they'll probably be sent to me by email and placed in the comments of the uh, website. Would you be maybe interested in coming back on sometime in the future and answer, answering those questions from the audience? Oh, sure. Yeah, I did a talk up in New York Sunday week ago. I just got an email from the guy today. Just wanted to say it was a pleasure to have you to be a part of our event and meet you in person. I understand your room is filled to capacity, and your message stirred up lots of different conversations about what we currently believe to be true, and that's exactly our goal. <laughs> so, yeah, you can expect that. Okay, great. Well, I'd love to have you back on. Again, your website is buybycarbs.com, and uh, you do uh, some podcasting. I, I, there's about six or seven of them there I listen to, and you also have some YouTube videos you put out, and you occasionally blog, right? Yes. And all of we're, we're, we're switching the orientation of the site now just to work on this glycation issue. Very cool. And... Uh, all of his books are available there, folks, and I, I really recommend them. Again, if you're part of the Member Support Brigade, you get a discount. I think it's 15% off the e-books. Um, please consider going by and picking this up. And if you've done, like, low-carb diets in the past, as Dr. Ellis said, he's got two versions of the low-carb diet book. One is an abridged version, and one is the full Monty, everything you would ever want to know. And I think both of them can be very, very helpful to you. And, uh, Dr. Ellis, again, thank you for being on the show today. You're welcome. Good to do it. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Dr. Greg Ellis, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Show you.